you can be seated, and we'll dismiss our school-age kiddos to the back. And as they're going, if you can uh, turn in your word, uh, Bible if you brought one, or on your device to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, we started uh, last uh, week and um, <clears throat> was really supposed to move to Acts 21 this week. Um, we're going to kind of punt that to next week. We got four sermons as best I can figure it out in the, uh, as we wrap up the book of Acts. Um, for those of you who are new with us, we started in the book of Acts uh, last January, uh, end of January. And so um, this has kind of been in our forefront uh, for a while, a few uh, series before that, uh, we did the book of Luke, and it took us three years to get through. And so basically, Luke has wrote a two-part volume, the gospel that bears his name, as well as the Acts of the Apostles. And so um, um, we've been studying and, and, and learning from uh, Luke, the gospel writer, for, for a large chunk of our history, even as a church, if you think about it. For over half of our existence, we've been studying some of his, uh, some of his words. So um, I'm excited to dive in. Again, I said I couldn't get past uh, chapter 20. There's just so much in there. I was talking to Jason this morning, just in reading it, uh, even as I was going over my notes again and again today, just things in Acts 20 that are jumping out um, to me. Um, this is the only book in, uh, only place in the book of Acts where Paul gives a lengthy address, actually to Christians. Um, before then, you know, all of his addresses at Mars Hill, at uh, in Corinth and on and on have been to skeptics or non-believers, maybe mixed with some Christians or Jews in the synagogue. This is his lengthy address to actual Christians. And he went way out of his way to be able to speak this to the uh, Ephesian elders. It says, uh, if you go into the, in the first part, kind of the contextual part of chapter 20, um, of course, he is headed to Jerusalem um, somehow he's got some kind of ownership of this, uh, of this vessel, um, told them to uh, dock in Miletus, and it's from there that he calls for the uh, Ephesian elders uh, who would have to uh, travel 20 miles to be able to see him. So this is like a big weighty thing if you kind of kind of get the picture. Paul had spent three years in Ephesus teaching and building up the church, evangelizing so successfully that the province of Asia, all the province of Asia, it tells us in uh, 1910, had heard the word of the Lord. He left and would spend the winter in Corinth, now on his way to Jerusalem, hurrying to get back by Pentecost. This is probably in the year 56. His boat puts in at Miletus, some 20 miles from Ephesus. He sends for the elders of the church, so he sends a, a messenger there. They come back to him. And, uh, and then he gives them this address. And so what we have is kind of this, uh, these last words of Paul to these Ephesian elders where he had poured his heart out several times in this passage. If you remember from last week, it says that, uh, you know, he did this with tears. And this is kind of what he wants the elders to hear most of all. He couldn't pass without showing them this tremendous importance uh, one that he puts on eldership in the church. And the fact that Luke pauses to kind of give an account to us of this message under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is God's message, not only to them, but certainly applicable to us today. It's important for us to hear. 
Because as the leaders of a church go, so goes the church. I encourage you to pray for your leaders and your pastors that they may be as passionate and committed to these things as Paul is. That you would take these very same truths, apply them to your own life, and imitate those who come closest to fulfilling this vision that the author of Hebrews talks about in chapter 13 and verse 7. He says, remember your leaders, those who spoke the word, to, the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their life and imitate their faith. Now, this puts a lot of pressure on me as a pastor and as a leader and many of you, and that's not pressure that I have to do in my own strength or that would be scary. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. And not that any man or woman or leader in your life is going to be a perfect example of this, but hopefully it's going to be a fleshly example, even as Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So last week from the passage, we talked about five marks of gospel community Lives marked by following Jesus, not just hearing about him, learning about him, but literally following in his footsteps, obedient to the way of Jesus. Lives marked by humility and tears. We talked about the hum, uh, humility that Paul had as he served this uh, church by perseverance, that he did this not just uh, in the short run, but in the long run. By love, a mark by love for the obedience to God's word we talked about. We're going to get some back on that a little today. And then finally, by laying down your own personal preferences so that the gospel may go forward. And if those things could be said of our church, we would indeed, through the power of the Holy Spirit, begin changing the culture just as this little small church changed the whole landscape, not just of Ephesus, but of the Roman Empire. There's so much here, so much left in the chapter we didn't get to. I pray that you would, uh, you might be on several different reading plans. My encouragement would be today, some of the rest of the day, this afternoon, uh, that you would sit down with Acts 20 and maybe read it a few times that the Holy Spirit might illuminate even some more stuff to you. I didn't get past, uh, very far past uh, verse 20 in my study this week. And this might be one of those messages that's hard to take notes on because it's more like what God is like showing me in my heart uh, so I, I apologize for that if you're note takers. Um, I could just email you the entire sermon, I guess, uh, as, as, I, as I wrote it, if it, it helps. But let's look at verse 20. Just kind of jumping into his uh, talk here in verse 20. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And I think if there's this, I don't know, this heading to the, to the topic today, it's this fierce commitment to truth. Ultimately, this is why Paul is doing all of this, why he diverted his trip, why he sent for the elders, why they came 20-mile trip, likely on foot to see him, why this, it ends with this very emotional address as they're all weeping because they're not going to see him again. And all of this, he does all of this so that these young believers would know and fight for and cling to the truth. Paul didn't waver. He didn't beat around the bush. He wanted them to know the truth because it's in the truth that they would find real freedom. Think about this. When Paul came to Ephesus, probably four years previous to this conversation he's having with these leaders, most of these now elders, pastors, were worshiping a meteorite that had fallen from heaven that they called Artemis. 
This is what they worshiped when Paul came to town. So Paul came and he brought the good news of the gospel. Summed up for us here in verse 21, testifying, this is kind of the, 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 his message, testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance, acknowledging that you've been chasing life your own way, following, you know, your own pattern, living by, uh, you know, the glandular living, I think someone called it, that we just do what we want to. Repentance towards those things and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That in Ephesus, the resurrection of Jesus had gone from a newspaper heading that they likely would have heard about to their Savior and Lord that radically changed their own life. Because they had heard this truth and they had turned from their sin and their own effort and toward Christ, they were saved and their lives were completely transformed. And now these people, once Artemis worshipers, are now pastors and they're growing this church that would eventually, again, change the entire city. Think about it like this. If you went to a city like New York or Chicago or L.A., this big metropolis of a city that has less than 2 or 3% evangelical Christians there, and you were to start some Bible study with them, and you're going to study, and the, you know, the pressure around you would just be unbelievable, and the trials and difficulty, yet but from this one little Bible study that you're going to topple a city that you're going to change the rhythms of a New York or a Chicago or an L.A. That is the power of the gospel. Jesus would describe it like yeast in, a dough, in the dough. The yeast, although it may be un, unable to be seen from the political leaders at the time, was doing this work. He also said it's like a seed that's planted. And you don't, you don't even notice a seed until it grows into a, into a mighty tree. And then it changes the landscape of everything. This is, this is what's happening in the city of Ephesus. And so Paul's got to get back there. He's got to remind them that they've got to be fierce, fierce about the truth, that they've got to follow his example and not shrinking back, but declaring the truth and living the truth. He says in verse 26, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. If you're not, uh, haven't grown up in Christendom, this might be a little, you know, weird verse to you. Innocent of the blood of all. This is a military analogy pulled from Ezekiel 33. If you would just turn there real quickly, or I think I've got this on the screen. Ezekiel, a prophet for God. It says in Ezekiel 33 and verse 1, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, if I bring the sword upon the land and the people of the land, take a man from among them and make him their watchman. And if he sees the sword coming upon the land and he blows the trumpets and warns the people, then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning and the sword comes and takes him away, then his blood is on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet, did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet so that the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes any one of them, that person is taken away in his own iniquity. But his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. You understand the illustration, right, that... If the enemy came and the watchman was goofing around and didn't warn anybody, 
Who would be accountable for that? It would be the watchman's fault. That was his job. He was posted on the wall. He was supposed to be the one that saw the enemy coming, blew the trumpet. We would all know we could all take cover. That's his job. But if the watchman sent out the warning and you did not listen, then whose fault would that be? That'd be on you. Because you heard the word of the Lord proclaimed, that you heard the truth proclaimed. That's the point that Paul is making, that there's a path that leads to life. And its way is narrow, and it requires for you to deny yourself and die to yourself and take up your cross and to follow Jesus. That's the way that leads to life. That's the way Proverbs says, that's spoken from the house of wisdom. But there's also a way, and you know this very well, right, that leads to destruction. That's the easy way. Man, do what feels good. Listen, Listen to your heart. Choose what you want to choose. Listen, if you choose the way of sin, you're choosing to suffer. You're choosing the way that leads to destruction. Go the narrow way, you find life and peace and blessing. Go the broad way and you find headache and devastation, ultimately destruction. You've been warned. Paul says, listen, your blood is not on my hands. I was the watchman on the roof. I was blowing the trumpet. I was this clarion call for truth. I spoke to you the good news. I talked about the kingdom of God. Therefore, he says again in verse 26, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. This is what Paul is called to. This is what my life has been called to, to declare to you the whole counsel of God. I do not have responsibility to declare to uh, the podcast world the whole counsel of God, but specifically on my life is to stand before as an under-shepherd under Jesus Christ, who is our lead pastor, to stand as an under-shepherd under him and proclaim the word of God to you. And then that call for every believer in this room, there's the similar call in your life, that you've been posted as a watchman in your neighborhood and at your workplace. You've been posted as a watchman that you would declare the truth of God to people, not in a way that we're browbeating them or with sandwich boards and megaphones, but through your relationship and your zeal for God that you would look for opportunity with your life and with your mouth to talk about how great God is and the good news of Jesus. So Paul says, listen, your blood's not on my hands. The next phrase, we talked about this briefly last week. He says, verse 27, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God." Such a great phrase. I've been reading this multiple times this week. This whole counsel of God, the New American Standard says the whole purpose of God. The NIV, maybe your translation, says the whole will of God. It actually means the whole word of God. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 25, which Paul says, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that, I, that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Paul says, the call of my life as I came and planted this church in Colossae was to make the word of God fully known. Again, that's the ministry given to me for, uh, I mean, the other pastors here for our church. It's certainly a ministry that extends even to you for your home to preach the whole counsel of God. Not just the parts that I like to preach so that our numbers might grow. Not just the parts that I enjoy reading but the whole counsel, the whole plan, the whole purpose, the whole of Scripture. 
Look at that phrase again in verse 27 too. He uses it several times in this passage. He said, for I did not shrink back. The New King James says, I've not shunned. The NIV says, I've not hesitated. This is actually a nautical term that was borrowed from the nautical world about uh, pulling down the sail. And it was even used uh, as a military term. Paul says, I did not retreat. Just because they had bigger guns and just because they had more people, I didn't shrink back. Just because they were crouching out the door looking to stone me again in this city, I did not retreat. I did not hold back. In the presence of outside threats, I told you the truth. In the presence of inside threats, I told you the truth. I can't tell you how many times I've argued with the Lord about this very thing. Because this is a difficult thing and I like to be liked by people. And some of God's word is very controversial and some of God's word is offensive even to my own heart and I've I could tell you dozens and dozens of times on Sunday morning my practice is to wake up really early Sunday morning and begin to pray through this and read over this several times so that it's burns in my own heart so when I get up here this is not some speech I'm giving but it's something that God is teaching me in those moments too numerous to really tell I've had this conversation with God God I don't want to say that God certainly not this text certainly couldn't we just can we talk about just peace or love or joy? Can we just camp out? Can we just do John 3.16 again? Can, can we talk about those things? And if you've walked with the Lord very long, you know what the answer is. Luke, are you here to serve men or to serve me? Preaching and teaching. Paul says the truth. I didn't shrink back from it. He has three little pairs in verse 20 that seems very interesting to me. He says that he's going to preach these things or testify to these things. He says, uh, without hesitation, that's I did not shrink back. And what's profitable through preaching and teaching in public and from house to house. Three little pairs, and this is maybe a, a mini sermon in here, but first, without hesitation. You know that the truth can be hurtful and cutting if it's not done in the right way. And Paul's not advocating here that we go knocking people out with some kind of truth club. No, not at all. This takes surgical precision to speak truth to people. And it takes a clean heart of your own to speak such things. He says, I spoke the truth to you without hesitation. I did not shrink back, but in a way that was profitable. Biblical truth will always offend everyone somewhere. It offends us differently. It presses on different pressure points. We need to stand up for truth, certainly, but we need to do so in a way that's helpful or profitable. This is what he talks about here in verse 20. I didn't shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable. That word also translated helpful. We get further definition of what that actually means if you'd skip down to verse 32 in the passage. This is one of the phrases that I've read this passage a uh, hundred times in the past couple of weeks, and I didn't see this until Friday. Isn't it crazy how God's word just kind of illuminates to you? The Holy Spirit does this so that you'd see certain parts at certain times, what you need to hear and see. Verse 32, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. Build you up without hesitation, but in a way that's profitable. 
in a way that builds up. Some of us use truth like a club, and we want to be right. And we want you to know that we're right, and so we use truth as a weapon so that we would injure other people, so that we would cut them, so that they would realize in some kind of weird, twisted way that we have the truth and they do not. And a lot of times that's how we use it. A lot of times that's where evangelism comes from, that we want to evangelize so that we can prove to the rest of the world that they're wrong and that we're right and that is not from the right heart. I went through a phase of this, of this uh, truth club, uh, carrying around this club of truth, beating people in the head with it. Um, It's a part of my life I'm not very proud of. I remember being in high school having a friend who was listening to all this vile music and riding in her car. And I began throwing her CDs out of the sunroof, right? Um, Which I I don't know that, I don't think that fits in God's word either. But for some reason, I thought I was justified in the moment. Very pharisaical. Needless to say, I didn't win her over to the truth, right? She just hated my guts from there and didn't talk to me. Truth, spoken in the right way and from the right heart, builds people up. That's what Paul is saying. I didn't shrink back. I wasn't, I wasn't scared of telling you the truth. But I did so in a way that was profitable for you, verse 32, which is able to build you up. We don't just believe the truth to, to be right. No, the truth is a means to an end. One commentator compared it to food. It's food for the soul. It builds you up. It strengthens you. It changes you. Case in point with the Pharisees. They know all the truth. They've got the entire Old Testament likely memorized, but they didn't let it change them. They know the truth in their heads, but they never let it affect their hearts. Luke 11 has a message from Jesus to these Pharisees. You remember he said, woe to you. He commends them that they tithe even their mint and their herbs. Can you imagine before you left the house this morning, before you came to to our our worship gathering, you went out in the garden and you just took 10% of your herbs and put those in the basket later. He said, listen, you're tithing. I mean, you are just on point. Yet, he says, they neglect justice and the love of God. They missed the point. In the same passage, he goes to say, you work so hard at cleaning up the outside, but you never address the inside. And that's why in our culture, in the West, we've got churches filled with thousands and thousands and thousands of people who are working on cleaning up that outside, man. I'm going to stand up when I should, and I'm going to give what I should, and I'm going to sing the songs that I should, and I'm going to say amen, and I'm going to do all these things, but their hearts have never been changed. they still got a heart of stone in there. They know the truth of God in their heads, but they've never let it radically affect their lives. And here's how you know that it radically affects your life, that the change happens from the inside out. Change happens from the inside out. As you begin to walk with God and the Holy Spirit begins to bring conviction in your life. And you willingly submit those things to God and fall under his lordship with joy because you know that he's a God that loves you, a a loving, perfect father. Who wants the best for you? This is what Colossians means. Colossians 3.16. Talking about truth. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Man, that's a, that's a verse that we should read to ourselves every day or memorize as one that we would fight with 
to fight our own feelings of unbelief, to fight our own feelings of apathy that creep up, creep up on us. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And when that happens, the rest of that verse, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, this is Ephesians speaking truth to one another. This is what happens when the word of God dwells in us richly, then we begin to admonish and encourage one another in all wisdom, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs together, thankfulness in our hearts to God. It starts with the word of Christ dwelling in us, not in our heads only, in our hearts. And from the inside out, our lives are being changed into the image of who Jesus was. And, and that's what is happening even to Paul. As his life has been so radically changed and these elders are seeing Paul as a reflection of who Jesus is. The point is that truth doesn't exist for itself. But when it gets close to us and deep into our minds and in our hearts, it begins to change us. Think about who you used to be. For those of you who, come, who came to Christ as an adult, you remember life before and after Christ. Many who've grown up in the faith, it's maybe a little foggier to remember because as, as far back as you remember, you've been brought up in Christ. But even the point still remains that our lives should continuously be changed. Look more and more like Jesus. Live less and less for ourselves. Isn't that the prayer of John the Baptist that I must decrease so that he must increase? Not just truth clubs, but truth that is profitable. Another way scripture talks about this in John 1 is truth and grace together. It's truth and grace together that builds people up. John 1 tells us that Jesus came in truth and grace. Truth without grace isn't really truth, and grace without truth isn't really grace. Jesus was all grace and all truth, right, together. Not half and half. He was 100% grace, 100% truth. He was all grace. He welcomed sinners and tax collectors and ate with them. He was known as a friend of sinners. He had compassion on the crowds when they were hungry, far from home. He welcomed little children to sit in his lap. He was more gentle and kind than any one we could imagine. He healed the lepers by touching them, the lame, the blind. He stopped his procession one time to heal the lady who had the issue of blood again and again. He was full of grace. He saved the criminal on the cross. He forgave those. In his dying breath, the people who were beating him, he was full of grace. And yet Jesus was full of truth. He condemned many of the religious leaders of the day, even calling them broods of vipers, liars, hypocrites. He talked about hell more than he talked about heaven. He called all of those who would be his disciples to take up their cross daily and follow him to count the cost before they did. He prophesied judgment on Jerusalem for their unrepentant hearts. He obeyed the law. He set standards. He demanded everything from his followers, even their very lives. He was full of truth, and he was full of grace. Jesus came from the Father, full of grace and truth, all grace, all truth, all the time. Here's a quote by Kevin DeYoung. But he didn't come simply to give us an example of grace and truth. He came to save us in grace and truth. It's only after we've been saved and made right with God that God says, all right, now that I've saved you through Jesus, you need to know that I have saved you to look like Jesus. The motivation to be full of grace and truth is not because we need to earn God's favor, but because being a follower of Jesus Christ means we begin to look like the one that we follow. Can you imagine a community that's full of both, full of truth and grace, that we're not injuring or hurting anyone with truth yet we're not 
We're not hesitating to speak hard truth to each other, but we do so from a heart that's pure and a relationship that's built strong that we, wanna, we want each other to know. God doesn't tell us anything, not one nugget of truth that we would just know it. 1 Corinthians 8 warns us that knowledge puffs up. But the love of God builds up. The truth is supposed to be digested and applied and allowed to change us as we understand it and obey it. Church, are you letting the truth of God build you up? Who in your life have you allowed to speak truth on a level that's offensive to you? That you trust to such an extent that you've invited them in. Hey, give me that last 2%, man. I want to hear truth. I know you love me and you care for me and I want you to speak truth to me. If you don't have godly men and women in your life that you have given that permission, not just given permission, you've, you've, invited, you've invited them to share such things and you've put it on your calendar where you're going to reach out to them and you're going to ask them, hey man, is there anything in me that you see that I'm, I'm out of bounds on. Listen, none of us in here have reached a full level of maturity. We are all growing into the likeness of Jesus. And certainly there's blind spots in our life all the time that we need trust and friends to sit alongside us, to look us in the eye, can tell when we're full of it, and speak truth to us. Paul says to his dearest friends, I didn't hesitate but I also did so in a way that's profitable. There are a few other pairs here in, in verse 20. It's speaking more to his mode or method of, uh, of truth-telling or testifying. He says he did it preaching and teaching. Your translation may, may uh, say declaring and teaching. This speaks more to the modes of communication really than anything else. You see this even reflected in the church today. Preaching literally means proclaiming. It was the public declaration of God's word. And then teaching was a more didactic, systematic approach. Preaching, the exhortation, teaching, explaining the content, making sure the hearer understands what's being taught. It's a great example of this working together in Nehemiah 8. As Ezra gets up, you remember the story of the, uh, Nehemiah goes to rebuild the wall. Ezra, the priest, stands up and reads God's word aloud. As soon as he begins to open God's word, it says everyone stood in unison and they're standing there listening to God's word being read. But there's also priests among them who are able to explain it in a way that everybody understands it, has a real sense of what it means. Then I thought this was interesting too, that Paul the Apostle is taking time not just to speak in the hall of Tyrannus, but he's also going house to house, it says. If you want the kind of truth that really creates health in you, it's not enough just to gather on Sundays. It's not enough just to hear me talk about this or one of the other pastors. It's not enough just to go to an equipping class. If you want truth that really creates health, even the best sermons that move you emotionally, only go so far. Even the best worship that cultivates, right, this heart of gratitude in us only goes so far. Where truth really gets into your life and comes to really affect your rhythms and practices is on a relational level. That's what discipleship is. Again, this is where we've gotten, the, 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 whole, the whole church gotten this wrong. You know, we, 
We used to have uh, discipleship training in churches I grew up in at, at 4.15 on Sundays, right? Right before youth choir, we would have discipleship training, and it was all about the systematic content. And that kind of made us kind of think that discipleship is like, is like something we go to. It's like this, this stuff that we learn. But Paul said, no, 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 that stuff's important. You need to understand the truth of God. He tells Timothy that he should have sound doctrine. But more than that, truth doesn't enter and apply and get, and, and get into your heart without this relational component. Jesus to his disciples, how many times did Jesus stand up and give this message which the disciples didn't understand? And it's kind of the after party, right? They're sitting around with Jesus. Hey, Jesus, what did that mean exactly? When you said that about drinking your own blood, like, seriously, is this a... He began to exp- explain it to him when... Over and over, the parable of the seed and the, and the sower, and it all goes out. Then the real impact of that passage is the debrief with the disciples. It wasn't just a declaring the truth. It wasn't a proclaiming, although that was part of it. It was a, an applying. It's like the lecture in the lab. Like you have the lecture, and then, and then you have the lab where we really begin to wrestle with it. To use the illustration of the dough and the yeast, again, a lecture where throwing the yeast out on top of the dough but in the lab and the relationships we're rubbing we're rubbing it in think about it as a godly mom and dad to their kids that they don't just wake up on monday mornings and just say this is what our family's about no they do life with their kids and they interact and when their kids mess up they 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 they're there to to help them recover and to to show them the the right the right way to think that discipleship happens just on a Sunday, then we've, we've missed the point. And Paul's saying, listen, I just didn't declare this to you on a stage somewhere. I went house to house teaching this to you. He knows it's going to take more than public sermons to really disciple these people to see Christ formed in them. So he shares meals with them. He explains it to them. He applies it to their life. He listens to their concerns and doubt. He weeps with them and celebrates with them. Again, the Western church has redefined church as a place that you come to to hear truth, but that was never the real meaning of church. It was always about a people, the people of God, who loved God with all their hearts and loved each other sacrificially. That was the church. One of the things I love about being in a, in a gymnasium that's not ours, none of you mistook this morning that this was the church, right? This is the gym. We are the church, the people of God are the church. And not just the people here at Covenant, but all of the believers in our city. We've kind of got this spirit of divisiveness in this, in this city of pastor against pastor. Man, God forbid that that creep up in our own hearts. We are the bride of Christ. The Western church is the people of God. I mean, the church is the people of God who radically love God and each other and partner with him in his mission. Let's say one more thing about truth and don't want to get too far into this, but he's so concerned that his children in the faith and in his church that he planted to continue to walk in truth. He wants these leaders to know the gravity of the situation and their responsibility as leaders. Look at verse 28. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. Remember, he's talking to the elders in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. 
I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from your own selves, men will arise speaking twisted things. Notice what the attack is on. The attack's not on Paul, it's on the truth. They're going to speak twisted things in order to draw away disciples after themselves. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. He starts first with a warning to the pastors themselves. Pay attention to yourselves. I can't tell you how many pastors that I know personally who didn't pay attention to themselves. And in doing so, their hearts grew cold. They began to get into the ditch and further into the ditch. Many of them moral failures. This is not one or two. This is dozens and dozens. One of the things I love about our church, and really I think the prescription of healthy church in the New Testament is plurality of leaders at the top. We've got several elders at our church, and none is above the other. We just kind of are doing this together. And at least once a week, we look each other in the eye, and we say, man, how's it going? Which we gospel each other. We hold each other accountable in this. This is, this is part of what it means to pay attention to yourselves. And Satan wants nothing more than to disqualify the people who are ministering, putting out the seed of God's word. But not just to yourselves, but to all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. This word overseer used synonymously in the Old Testament with the word shepherd. Certainly what Paul means here is to shepherd the flock. Scripture calls them pastors or elders or overseers or shepherds. They're all shepherds. He uses this illustration of shepherds. He doesn't say generals. No sergeants here, no tyrants. He calls the leaders shepherds. As a shepherd, you lead your flock to the truth. You protect them from error. The twisting of the truth, it says in verse 30. Now, shepherds certainly have a spiritual authority. The sheep just don't get to do as they please. The shepherd doesn't wake up every morning and poll the sheep about where they want to go for the day. No, that's not the case. But yet, shepherds are gentle. Let's be honest. You know you. You know your heart. You know it's prone to wander away from God. You know you need the accountability. Everybody needs a shepherd. They need a shepherd who will speak truth to them. They need a shepherd who is close to them, one that earns your trust. I need a shepherd in my life. More than just Jason and Weston and the other men that are walking through our eldership pipeline, but There's three or four other pastors that are near and dear to my heart. I've placed myself under their authority. That they would have the freedom to speak in and to address any issues that seem to come up. We all need a shepherd. Someone who's not afraid to tell you the truth you don't want to hear, but to do it in a way that's gentle, without judgment. That's a sermon in itself. We don't have time to keep going there. I want to end with this thought that Jesus is our chief shepherd. Just in the way that Paul instructs this church to shepherd the 
flock among them. When we pan back out, we kind of see what the author Luke here is doing. You see what he's doing? Pan way out. What is, what is Paul doing? Paul's being formed into the image of Christ himself. Like Jesus, Paul is heading to Jerusalem. Like Jesus, he's heading there knowing that trials await for him there and maybe even death. And he's obedient even though he doesn't really want to. This picture of Jesus eating in the garden of Gethsemane, praying that the, this bitter cup be passed from him. But unlike Jesus, Paul is surrounded by friends. You remember Jesus went alone, died alone so that we could live the rest of our life in deep relationship with other people. Jesus became the loneliest man in history so that we would have the best friendships in the world. Certainly that we would be connected to God, but more so than that, we'd be connected to each other. Have you ever found it weird that you can meet a Christian in a different city, in a different town, different way of life, different upbringing, different culture, and there can be this thing that connects? You've been on one of those mission trips where you meet somebody and you can't even speak the same language. But the Holy Spirit is inside of them just like he's inside of you. And he's testifying to the truth in your heart and in their heart. And there's this camaraderie that we could... We could be friends. We could be family together, even here and even now. All of that because of the work of Jesus. What Paul's really doing here is pointing us to Jesus again and again and again. And I want us to end by thinking about him. Our chief shepherd, 1 Peter 5, calls him. Jesus, in his ministries, his heart was filled with compassion when he looked upon the crowd and they were like sheep without a shepherd. So Jesus didn't call someone in to do that. He became our chief shepherd. And even now, right now I believe that he's, through his Holy Spirit and the surgical precision of the Holy Spirit, he's leading you. He's convicting you. There's some sin in your life that you need to repent of. And you've kind of excused it and you've made excuses for it. I mean, this is just generational thing, or this is just how I am, or this is just what I struggle with. But Holy Spirit's unrelenting. He's still coming after you with that. God leading you to repentance through his own kindness. Maybe some of us, we've, man, we're just, we're just not the watchman on the wall that we need to be. God's given us the truth. Our lives have been incredibly changed by the truth, and yet it hasn't moved us. We're not, we're not manning our post. There's dear friends in our lives. There's people even in our own immediate family that we need to speak a word of truth to. And because of the enemy and the fear that he's brought in, it has paralyzed us from doing, from blowing the trumpet. Again, please, not in a way that is harsh or judgmental, in a way that should drive you to tears before you speak it. That's what, that's what Paul would say. That's the illustration. There's someone that you need to speak some truth to. Or maybe there's been some truth spoken to you and you don't want to hear it. You've been resisting. You've been attacking their character because you don't want to hear this. The Holy Spirit is saying, no, I'm committed to this. I want you to know the truth. Maybe some of you in this room, you're not, you're not even, you feel like you're on the outside looking in in this message. You're not even part of God's family. Maybe you've been playing games a long time. 
My encouragement would be to you to quit playing those religious games. Step across the line of faith and put your faith and trust in him. Wasn't that the message that Paul said that I communicated to you with humility and tears? It's repentance and faith. I pray some of you would even take a step of faith today. We're going to close our service with communion. It's before Jesus would set out on this Calvary road to his death that he took his disciples around him and he instituted this ordinance for the church that we would remember his death for us and that we would proclaim his death again until he comes. You don't have to be a member of our church to partake of this, but you do have to be a member of God's family desiring to live in obedience to him. I want to pray for us and I want to give you some time just to deal with the Holy Spirit and what he's doing in your heart. Please don't feel any obligation that you have to come and take communion, but you're certainly invited to. I'll be in the back if you'd like to pray with someone. Maybe you need to grab the hand of your spouse or your kid if they're in here and just re-up your commitment to truth as a family. Not just knowing it, doing it. God, I thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, how in your kindness you lead us to repentance. And how often that we miss it or we play games or we excuse it. I thank you for the example of Paul who labored in humility and tears for years and years so that Christ would be formed in these people. Lord, I thank you for what you're doing in us, in our hearts, in our lives, in our own individual stories. How you didn't leave us as orphans, but you adopted us into your family. You were rejected so that we could be accepted, that you were condemned so that we could be set free. Pray that you begin to, I mean, continue to do that work in our lives. For those of us in this room, for those in this room that don't know you, I pray for a measure of faith in their heart and life, that they would take those steps today of obedience to you. And thank you for this institution of communion, that we can be reminded that we're family because we're all eating together with you. I continue this work. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You come when you're ready. At the foot of the cross Where mercy paid for me Where the wrath 
I deserve It is gone, it is past Your blood has hidden me Mercy Mercy As endless as the sea I'll sing your hallelujah For all eternity a passage in Colossians 1, Paul's talking about his ministry to the church, and what he says is, he says, I've been given a stewardship by God, and the Greek word uh, literally translated means household. Paul's 